I once was lost. Threshold one. Trusting a Christian. I wasn't the least bit interested in anything that came out of your mouth. It was impossible for me, Doug, to become Mark's friend. He always avoided eye contact with me, though I would smile and say hi as I passed him in the dorm. I had no idea what was going on in his heart and mind. I was a senior and Mark was a freshman at Occidental College. He lived down the hall from me, but our paths were miles apart because the guys on the water polo team had warned him. Watch out for that Doug guy. He is the head of the God Squad in the dorm. Sometimes God builds trust between people in the most unexpected way. I knew that guys like to bond over sports, so on Friday afternoons we would roll out these old wrestling mats I had discovered, and about 20 of us would take turns wrestling each other behind the dorm. Since I was a varsity wrestler in high school, I had a distinct advantage over a bunch of guys who were giving wrestling a shot for the first time. Mark was one of these guys. Though Mark was willing to wrestle with me, he would never have entered into a spiritual conversation with me. He distrusted me, and he was not looking for religion. Matt got on the mat, and we bonded over sweat. And then a small miracle happened within him. He decided that I was just like him. I was sweaty, fun, normal. I was no longer someone to be feared. I could be a friend. After that, he began to hang out in my room. I would leave my door open, hoping people would stop by and chat. When Mark came by, I put my book down, and Mark slowly told me his story. Only later did I find out what exactly had happened on the wrestling mat. I could not see the revolution that was erupting within him. While he lived on the far side of the great divide of distrust, I looked like an ogre. Once he passed through the threshold of trust, I looked like someone he could talk to, share life with, and befriend. An era of distrust. Trust is sweet. It is better than gold. Trust is always a gift of the heart, and therefore it just may be the most precious thing in life next to love. Trust between two people is so valuable and precious that it should never be taken for granted. Once a friend told me, Doug, that she was giving me a special birthday present. On my birthday, she gave me a card that read, I give you my trust. Holding that card in my hand, I understood the weight and beauty of what was being offered. I was deeply grateful. What most of our friends have told us is that the process of coming to faith really gained traction for them once they started to significantly trust a Christian. There is an invisible wall between distrust and trust, a threshold. It seems that people must move through this threshold into trust in order for them to continue on to Jesus. But why is this our starting place? Shouldn't we be talking about new ways of laying out the gospel? What about quoting verses for people? Can't we just focus on Bible verses that better connect with a postmodern generation? No, we can't. Relationships, genuine friendships, are our currency. Krista doesn't trust Christians because she was once told she's going straight to hell. A professor told Ryan that the Bible is full of mistakes. Bonnie read the Da Vinci Code and thinks the church is one big conspiracy. Julie was invited to a church outing but felt like an outsider the entire time. In another day and age, God, religion, and church enjoy the general respect of the culture. Not today. Religion is suspect, church is weird, and Christians are hypocrites. Distrust has become the norm. People are tired of the sales tactics often employed by Christians and are offended by our bait-and-switch attempts at introducing them to Jesus. In the past, the occupation of evangelists was viewed as a respectable profession, even by secular society. Today, evangelists has fallen to the very bottom of the pit among the most distrusted occupations. When people first find out we are Christians, we often literally see them shift from relaxed to rigid, from warm to suspicious. This is because when our friends first hear us call ourselves Christian, 
Several negative things often immediately flash to their minds. Christians are self-righteous. They always think they're better than me. I'm about to get judged, so I better put my defenses up. Christians are naive and narrow-minded, and they believe in fairy tales. Christians are always pressing politics, so watch out. Dawn. On a recent airplane flight, I got into a quite pleasant conversation with the person sitting next to me. He was a businessman from India. Even though I'm quite introverted, I always love good, intelligent conversation. And this man was a great conversationalist. We spoke of some current events, ventured into politics, spoke of the regions and cultures we were from, and then he did it. He asked me what I did for a living, and I cringed. I cringed because I am a campus pastor, and while I know that it is a blessing to have such spiritual matters brought up in the conversation, and while I am not in the least embarrassed about what I do, I knew that once he found out, that invisible but real shift would happen in our conversation. Sure enough, it did. When he found out I was a Christian, he looked quite surprised. I assumed he was surprised that he had actually been having an enjoyable conversation with a Christian. Then he politely turned back to his magazine and kept his nose in it the rest of the flight. I tried not to be frustrated. I knew that when it came to Christians, this man was like many others. He was starting off with distrust. I wasn't starting on level ground in our conversation. I was starting in a hole. When trust has not yet been established, lostness feels like wise skepticism and right thinking. If Christians are fanatical and narrow-minded, keeping one's distance seems like the smartest posture to take towards us. There is something twisted about those swarmy Christians, and they want to fix me with a twisted agenda. Until this framework of distrust is shifted, growth is nearly impossible. The good news is that we are not the first generation to face a context whose default is distrust. The Apostle Paul faced an inherently skeptical audience as he traveled from city to city in the Roman Empire. Those who espoused a Hellenistic worldview were not impressed with his declaration of the resurrection. They did not begin with a posture of respect. In fact, they looked down on this poser, mocking him as a babbler. Acts 17.18 Paul was not offended or intimidated by their insults. Instead, he found a way to press on and declare the good news. Let us learn like Paul to not only survive, but thrive in our current context of distress. Let us learn to be like Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Philippians 2, 6. God decided to incarnate himself to come right alongside people. The word didn't have to become flesh and pitch a tent right in our neighborhood, but he did, John 1, 14. This is the incarnational way of God, his chosen way to bring people to himself. And it points the way for us, his children, to get along in this world as well. We aren't to preach at people from on high, but to come alongside, to shake hands and befriend, to build trust. And as it turns out, this is exactly what people need these days to begin their journey to faith. In fact, the irony is that the more we listen to scripture and history, the more we see the five thresholds is not merely for our current generation our five knee-jerk reactions to distrust. When the rigid air of distrust blows over us through a glance or comment, it is normal to react. Distrust hurts. It is unpleasant. After all, who wants to be rejected? If we are honest with ourselves, each of us has to admit that we are not eager to interact with people who are suspicious of us. Often we react in ways that are less than loving, and sometimes we end up doing more to destroy trust than we do to build it. Awareness of these common destructive reactions within ourselves can help us identify our own temptations and keep us from just reacting blindly when someone starts off distrusting us. 
Here are five of the most common knee-jerk reactions to distrust that we have observed and experienced. Number one, defend. Often when someone assumes negative things about us, we get defensive. What's your problem? I am perfectly cool. We know or assume there's nothing we personally have done wrong, and so we want to defend our reputation. Hey, I'm not one of those televangelist types. Sometimes we even want to defend whatever it is about Christianity that has caused distrust in them. Look, if you really understood the crusade, while these defensive instincts are natural and instinctive, they are a pretty sure sign that we are starting to close our heart to the person who mistrusts us. Number two, bruise. Sometimes when we are not trusted, we feel personally offended. We become indignant. Why would you not trust me? I can't believe I'm being treated this way, lumped stereotypically, unfairly with other Christians. We get offended that the other person feels offended, and no one really takes time to listen. Our ego is so bruised that we become reluctant to put our heart on the line again. Frequently, even though we wouldn't admit it, we allow disdain to grow in our heart. We see ourselves as the one who is persecuted, as the victim in the situation. Dawn. On that airplane flight, I must admit I felt a bit persecuted, feeling as if I was being wrongly maligned. Number three, avoid. Often our knee-jerk reaction to the neighbor who gets stiff and weird when they find out we are Christians is to just avoid that neighbor ever after. We distance ourselves. If they don't like me, then why bother? Who wants to wade through their baggage with past Christians? It's easier to just avoid the awkwardness and gravitate towards those who get me and other Christians. We become numb and indifferent. We stop caring. 4. Judge Out of feelings of hurt and out of pride, some of us lash back with a condescending attitude. It seems so ridiculous that our non-Christian friends would look down on us that we point the finger right back. Or at least we want to. I can't believe this immoral, pot-smoking new-ager is actually looking down their nose at me. Whatever we feel under the gun, it's natural to want to turn the situation and point the gun at someone else. Number 5. Argue Some of us are good at debating, and when others react to the fact that we are one of those Christians, we receive their distress as a challenge. We rev up to unleash some potent logic on them. Look out for my apologetics. Hear this and weep. We get into a competitive mindset and don't want to lose the point. As we argue, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we are actually serving them, helping them along towards Jesus. But often this reactionary posture actually works to derail their journey of faith. Sure, arguing is a natural reaction. It's just not always a helpful reaction. Dawn. When I am honest with myself, I have to admit that my most common reaction to people who have issues with Christians is just to avoid them. Maybe I just don't sit near them, or maybe I sit by them but do everything I can to make sure the fact that I am one of those Christians doesn't come up. When I got a job at a county recreational facility back in Tacoma, Washington one summer, I joined a crew of wonderfully interesting dynamic men who were pretty jaded about most things. I even heard a couple disparaging remarks about Christians early on that summer. How did I respond to this hostile environment? I did everything I could to avoid getting their jadedness and mistrust pointed my way. I stared clear of certain topics and even, I am being honest here, answered a few of questions of theirs a little less than accurately. I didn't purposely do any of this. It's not as if I developed a strategy of avoidance as I entered the situation. Rather, this is how I naturally reacted to their distrust. It was sort of a knee-jerk response in my heart. Knowing this about myself is clarifying and helpful. It helps me pray for help. It helps me notice sooner in the process that I'm actually avoiding. My guess is we all deal with avoidance at some level and could all use a call to courage and a reminder that Jesus promised us, it was a promise, that we would not be treated well by everyone. 
Knowing this about my heart also helps me know which kingdom habits I need to purposely practice in order to build trust. Five Kingdom Habits to Build Trust In any friendship, trust develops over time. It could take anywhere from one day to years depending on how much distress the non-Christian is carrying or whether they have any at all. A trust in any friendship is a dynamic thing. There's no guarantee that once we have crossed the trust line with the non-Christian, they will magically trust us forever. There is, however, a basic threshold of trust that they will need to cross before evangelism can effectively happen. Though some people are naturally much better than others at building trust, we can all practice the five trust-building habits in this chapter, and the bond will grow. We need to learn to be unfazed by distrust. We are in an age of distrust, so instead of being surprised and reactionary when our coworkers or neighbors don't trust us, we need to learn how to respond kindly and quickly begin the normal, basic, and foundational investment of trust-building. These kingdom postures of building trust aren't just a necessity in times of great distrust. They are always the kingdom call. This is the call of love. It is the way of Jesus. Jesus leaned in toward people, asked them to come and see his life, went to their weddings and parties. He took on flesh and pitched a tent among people. He incarnated. One of the more obvious results of this was that people were comfortable with him, were drawn to him, especially, and this is an important point, those who were lost, far away from God. Those who tried to keep their distance from such needy, dirty, lost people were furious at Jesus for this. Eating with all the wrong people, he was. But as the author of Hebrews points out, the fact that Jesus was made like his brothers and sisters in every way means he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Folks feel free to draw near to him with confidence. Hebrews 2, 17, 4, 14 to 16. And that's just what people did. They came to Jesus. They came close to him with confidence. He could have been fed by angels, but instead he accepted invitations into the kitchens of those he met along his way. While this is always the call for us, it is an especially wise and blessed route to take in the type of distressful age we're swimming in these days. There are a few simple, practical ways that we can purposely build trust rather than give in to our knee-jerk reactions to distrust. Number one, pray. When we feel the temptation to defend, we can instead choose to stop and pray. As we catch ourselves getting defensive, we can silently ask God to soften our heart. We can admit that we are hurt or irritated by the other's distrust. We can be honest with God about our struggles by bringing our defensiveness to God. We are letting him do a deeper work in us. Jesus, you love this person enough to give your life for them. Please infuse my heart with your love and passion for them. Help me see them the way you see them. We can also pray for them, intercede for the stuff in their life their family, their concerns, their hopes and joys and struggles. There's nothing like going onto our knees for someone to help our hearts to them. As we take the time to try to think up a petition or two to utter on their behalf, something mysterious and wonderful may happen to us. As we consider their life, as we contemplate their fears and concerns so that we might intercede for them, as we wrap their life and specific circumstances in relationships and prayer, our own heart begins to soften toward them. We find it somehow easier to embrace them or at least care a little bit about them. As we are on our knees in prayer, God somehow shares his own parental affection for them with us. And this makes it much easier to lose the tight defensive posture we first had and goes a long way towards enabling trust. When you feel the urge to defend, pray. Number two, learn. When we feel the temptation to bruise and feel offended, we should choose to learn. We can try to understand the world from the other's perspective and sympathize with them. Instead of being victimized by their distrust, we can try to learn about their distrust, where it comes from, what has happened to them. Instead of being offended, we can choose to enjoy and accept them. 
We can even allow God to captivate us with them. The trust inventory. How much trust do you have? To help you think through how much trust you currently have with a friend or family member, ask yourself some simple questions about that relationship. Have they ever called me when they had a problem? Have I ever called them for help in anything? Have they ever been real with me when they were angry or sad? Do I hide my honest emotions or moods from them? Have they ever asked me for advice? Do we ever just have fun together? When do I feel most connected with them, and what are we doing then? In Mark 5, as Jesus is on his way to the house of Jairus, an important official, we see Jesus stop as he encounters a hurting, bleeding woman. Jesus doesn't just brush her off. He doesn't heal her wounds quickly so he can keep moving. He leans forward toward her with all his intention and care focused on her. To the shock of those in the crowd, and perhaps to our shock as well, Jesus makes time to let this woman, who had bled for 12 years, tell her whole story, detail by detail. How long did that take? Long enough for Jairus' daughter to die. Jesus listens to the woman, and he listens well. Jesus knows how to be present with people. After hearing her story, he knows that she needs physical healing and social healing. So before the entire crowd, he pronounces her clean and affirms her faith, easing her journey back into mainstream society. He has taken the time to listen for the deeper need. Following Jesus' lead and being a learner means that we too ask good questions, even of those who are annoying and distrustful. Jesus lets people capture his whole attention. He is captivated by them, their story, their yearning, their needs. He listens to their whole story and shows us how to be intrigued with each person's uniqueness. No two people have the same upbringing, the same hopes and dreams, the same fears. Instead of cringing and feeling bruised by their distress, we must lean into them and learn. Dawn When my wife and I first moved into our condo, I met one of our near neighbors, Rose. Rose was a retired school teacher. My first impression was that she was a somewhat grouchy woman and set in her ways. She came over to let me know that I had used the recycling bin incorrectly. She always had a furrowed, thoughtful brow. In another of our early conversations, I think as she asked me what I did for a living, it became silently clear to me that not only was Rose not a Christian, but there was a mound of distrust inside her towards us. A couple of barbed comments and I felt mightily misunderstood and oppressed. Now at this point, my temptation was to sigh deeply, play the victim, and avoid Rose as much as possible. Why subject myself to her sharp, though witty barbs? But I resisted these knee-jerk reactions and instead chose to learn more about Rose. I asked her a few questions and found that she was quite interesting. A friendship started to form. Eventually, we spoke in detail about God and Jesus and religion and her thoughts and feelings and experiences. We shared meals. We watched TV together. We played poker. Now, three years later, Rose is one of our best friends. We enjoy her and hanging out with her, and we really love her. I can't imagine my life without her. Slow conversations with her are one of the highlights of my week. If I had sat bruised as a victim, her distrust for Christians would have only grown. But now she has crossed threshold one. She trusts a Christian. And my life is all the richer for that. I understand more all the time why Jesus was so captivated by people. The habit of being a learner has strengthened my heart, enriched my life, and communicated love to Rose. People can smell a fake from a mile away. The rest of this book will be totally useless if you don't practice giving your heart away, going deeper in relationships with non-Christians. We can never treat people like projects. Give your heart. People need to know that you accept them and like them. When you are feeling bruised, choose to lean in and learn. Number three, bond. When we feel the temptation to avoid, 
we can choose to bond instead. Rather than walking wide circles around someone, we can walk right up and do what they do with them. Jesus pitched a tent in our neighborhood. He displaced himself humbly for us. This becomes our model. He loved us enough to get onto our turf. In leaving his comfort zone in heaven, he displaced himself and chose to walk with us through life. In the end, Jesus was accused of being a drunkard. It's one thing to accept people as they are. It's another to actually go to a party to be with them. Jesus chose to be with people. In calling the first disciples, he didn't send out letters from the synagogue and ask them to meet him there. He cruised the docks. He walked along the shore. He got into their boats. He went fishing. We, too, can get involved in the lives of those around us. Instead of taking an instinctive step backward, we can take purposeful kingdom steps forward. When our neighbors have a Super Bowl party or barbecue, do we go? What about Little League, the theater, or other such hobbies such as sailing, scrapbooking, book clubs, and gardening? The possibilities are endless. Everyone could use a buddy at Home Depot. In our place of work, do we see lunch outings and happy hours as opportunities to be with people, or do we poo-poo the seemingly trivial secular conversation? We've found that our most fruitful conversations with people happen while driving somewhere in the car, sitting next to each other at a baseball game, digging into each other's gardens, walking our kids together to the park, wrestling in a dorm, waiting for a movie to start. The best conversations with non-Christians rarely occur inside a church building or at an event designed for seekers. You don't have to be a student living in a dorm to find ways of bonding with these non-Christians God has placed in your life. Don. Years ago, I lived next door to a few men. These guys were real partiers, and since our apartments were next door to each other, they often invited me to party with them. I never went. We had a cordial relationship. They raided our fridge when they had the munchies. We borrowed their amazing gas barbecue, but nothing more. One day, Nick, one of the guys, told me he was heading out to nearby Eldora Canyon and asked if I wanted to come along. I had plenty to do that day, but decided to tag along, and as we hiked up into the mountains, it was one of his favorite trails, we naturally started to talk about the deepest things of life. This was where he felt most comfortable. This was where he got reflective. Because I went to where he was, the trust between us grew tremendously. The best tool to keep ourselves from avoiding non-Christians is to spend time with them. Not everyone will want to bond with us, of course, but if we want to help our friends cross threshold one, it is incumbent upon us to open our schedule and make them a priority in our busy life, to be willing to be displaced ourselves for the sake of building trust. Prayer is not actually enough, even genuine prayer. We have to hang out with folks in person. We combat avoidance with bonding. Number four, affirm. When we feel the temptation to judge, we can instead choose to affirm. We're not talking about a blind, indiscriminate affirmation of everything, though. Even kids can see through that cheap, meaningless golf clap affirmation. We're talking about looking for real good and affirming it. In Acts 17, addressing Athenians who are entangled in extreme idol worship, Paul speaks in an interesting way. It would be understandable, even expected, for him to utterly blast these heathens for their egregious violation of the second commandment. You can almost see it coming. In fact, many of us would have done just that. Our offense at their immoral behavior would have trumped any loving desire to help them come closer to Jesus. We are so quick to pull out our morality pistols and start firing away. Even when we resist the urge, our minds are often so focused on the sins of non-Christians we meet that we can see little else. Three pitfalls to avoid. Number one, avoid relativism. As you seek to build trust through affirmation, learning and going into someone else's world, you need to be careful to be honest about the uniqueness of Christ. 
You will actually be doing your friends a disservice if, in the name of trying to build trust, you pretend that all religions are the same and can lead to God. No one likes the bait and switch. You need to be clear in your own mind what is unique about Jesus. It would be hard to walk with your friends into the Jesus revolution if you don't know yourself what is revolutionary about Jesus. Number two, be with them, but don't sin. You want to get on their turf as best you can, but you shouldn't participate in activities that compromise your character or integrity. It's not worth it to break the law or do what you know to be sin. Find other ways to get on their turf. Number three, don't walk unwisely into temptation. Know what your struggles are. If you know you struggle with alcoholism, it might not be a very good idea to follow your coworkers to the bar after work. This caution is similar to the second, but is more about knowing your own limitations. Even if something isn't sin, it still might be harmful to your spirituality. Be thoughtful about your own temptations and make wise decisions based on that self-knowledge. But to our surprise, Paul affirms these folks. Yes, he affirms them. He works hard to find something good in this practice of theirs. I see that in every way you are very religious, verse 22. He affirms that they are seeking after God. He doesn't distance himself from their idolatry. He honors them for wanting to worship something. He sees his role as affirming kingdom impulses within them and then pointing them to Jesus. This is a powerfully disarming habit, forging bonds of real trust. We struggle to emulate Paul in this. We fear affirming sin in our friends, and so we say nothing, or we just judge. Maybe we turn a blind eye and naively tell them, it's all good. We might be shocked if God showed us today how many of our non-Christian friends' values are worth affirming. The gay activist commitment to equality. The Muslim co-worker's sacrificial weekend involvement in caring for the poor. Unfortunately, these often go unnoticed. We don't look hard enough to see and affirm the spiritual impulses of our Buddhist neighbors or the real humility before nature of the stoned guy next door or the great parenting skills of the mom who dabbles in Wicca. Where there is distress, our aloofness can come across as judgment. We have the power to combat this by looking for good in people and affirming it. That habit builds trust. Number five, welcome. When we feel the temptation to argue against a family member who doesn't trust us because we are a Christian, we can choose instead to welcome them into our life. Instead of posturing ourselves over and against them, we can welcome them with open arms into our world. This habit is vulnerable and risky. It has a way of disarming our combative posture and reminds us of Jesus. In John 1, Jesus offers some brand new acquaintances the incredible gift of hospitality. Come and see, he says. They are curious about him, and he invites them into his world. They get to come and see, to get to know him by seeing who he really is. Jesus wants to spend time with them instead of preaching a sermon to them. He's not pushy. He simply invites them in and opens up an opportunity for deeper relationship. Come and see is one of the most authentic, transparent gifts we can give. It is better than any pat answer we might offer. When folks are curious and frustrated about the mystery of who Jesus is, Matthew 11, 1-19, he similarly opens his arms of hospitality and transparency. What do you think? What do you see in my life? Jesus' life is an open book. He knows that his lifestyle and priorities will speak volumes. In the early church, we also see this revolutionary formation of a come-and-see Christian community. See, for example, Acts 2. These folks, like Jesus, opened their lives and hearts. They gave the grace of hospitality. Trust was built as their lives reflected a love and a power that went beyond human reason. They were a people of great hospitality and generosity and sacrificial service, and they invited people into this life of theirs. We can never stop at going into people's worlds to build trust. And we must also invite people into our own world. We can open our heart, our home, our lifestyle, and our friendships to them. We offer a profound grace to folks as we ask them to come and be with us.
John, I think I did the smartest thing ever when I married my wife, Wendy. For many reasons. One of the reasons it's such a blessing to partner with Wendy is how unimaginably hospitable she is. Around Wendy, people feel at home. She has her kitchen table regularly full of people. I never know who will be at the dinner table when I come home, and I always know I can invite anyone over for a meal. There will always be plenty of food, and Wendy will always be thrilled to have someone else at the table. Time and time again, I've seen how this kind of table fellowship sows kingdom seeds and softens up the rocky ground of distrust. When someone comes into my home to eat at our table, they can relate with Wendy and the kids. They can see what we do as a family, what our meals are like, how we relate, how we talk with Christian friends who are also present. Our lives become an open book because of that table and what Wendy makes happen there. Come and see sounds more like come and eat at our place, but the principle is the same. We combat the temptation to argue and push away through opening our arms in hospitality. Come and see, we say. And in this way, distrust begins to melt, and trust is built in unimaginable ways. The Beginning of a Journey According to the testimonies of hundreds of folks who once were lost, their journey towards Jesus began when they trusted a Christian. Once we learn this truth, we are free to love those non-Christians in our life who are at threshold one by helping them move from distrust to trust. We can become more self-aware about our knee-jerk temptations, and we can resolve to practice more helpful kingdom habits that make trust more possible. When God's Spirit moves and uses our small acts of love to help someone cross this threshold, it is the first step on what may just be a life-changing journey. After Mark began to trust me, Doug, on the wrestling mat, crossing threshold one, curiosity quickly followed. His questions poured forth. We looked at Jesus together in the scriptures. I told him about my experiences of God, and he hung around the community of friends with whom I followed Jesus. Seeing our lives and our love for each other, he was soon ready to seek God for himself. By January of that same academic year, he had entered the kingdom of God. He became a follower of Jesus. My heart exploded with joy. Within a few months, he and I were serving together once a week at an urban youth center, tutoring kids who needed help to get out of the cycle of gangs and drugs. Helping our friends warm up to God is what makes life rich and meaningful. Mark and I stayed close friends after I graduated. He was a groomsman in my wedding. Then he spent a few years in Russia, walking the path of faith with other university students as I walked with him a few years before. Today, Mark is using his gifts to influence millions of investment dollars around the globe for the sake of justice and righteousness. We keep in touch by Skype. He is one of my heroes. Seeing friends like Mark cross the threshold of trust means the world to me.